This is Care Less, Do More. Welcome to Care Less, Do More. This week, we dive into a special conversation with Emily Harrington. I'm beyond grateful for Emily as a friend, a constant source of inspiration, someone who I absolutely consider to be a trailblazer for women in adventure and action sports. Emily's voice literally plays in the back of my mind when I'm doing hard things. She's no stranger to discomfort and voluntary suffering, and I've learned so much from her. This episode was the very first episode that I recorded for this new podcast, and I've learned a ton since then. I was nervous and feeling vulnerable and anxious, but Em is the absolute best and made it super easy. We recorded this episode before the passing of Hillary Nelson, and I'd like to dedicate this episode to Hillary. May we all live as true to ourselves and as passionately and as authentically as Hillary did. Hillary, you're missed by so many, and we thank you for setting the boot pack and showing us that anything is possible. This episode is brought to you with the support of Arcteryx. I'm grateful to have Arcteryx's support in my personal career, as well as here on Care Less Do More. Arcteryx just released news that their latest lightweight compact avalanche airbag built for everyday use will be launching very soon. There is room for essential tools and gear. It'll no doubt be a game changer for me as I'll be riding in it every single day rather than picking and choosing which days I use an airbag based on weight of the actual pack. There's no travel restrictions with, with this pack, which is a huge benefit. 60 continuous operating hours once it's turned on with a full recharge in 25 minutes. This pack is available in three sizes, a 16 liter, 32 liter, and 42 liter. And it's called the Micon Electric Avalanche airbag. It'll be available this fall and winter season of 2022. Go get yourself this pack. It is no doubt going to change the game and just another tool for your toolkit when traveling in the mountains safely. This episode is also brought to you by Darn Tough, my personal favorite sock company and just a really good company in general. I wanted to highlight their socks with a purpose program, which has donated over 1 million meals to the Vermont Food Bank in an effort to help stop food insecurity. Proceeds from the Barnyard Sock specifically go to the Vermont Food Bank. With this purchase, you'll get this guaranteed for life, made in Vermont, beloved socks from Darn Tough, which we all have grown to love and admire. These socks are made from their inventory of overstock merino wool yarn, which are raw materials with no real defined future. There will be a link in the show notes for this particular sock program. Go support this brand as they truly are making a huge difference in people's lives. Emily, you started climbing when you were 11 years old and you're a five times national champion in sport climbing. You've summited Mount Everest in 2012. You've completed numerous first female ascents of 514 routes, made a complete ski descent of Cho Oyu, the world's sixth tallest peak. And most recently, this past November, you became the first woman to free climb Golden Gate on El Capitan in under 24 hours, making her the fourth woman in history to free climb El Capitan in a day. Emily's been a close friend and adventure partner over many years of friendship, and on a personal note, she's taught me a ton about setting goals, dreaming big, being vulnerable, and you're kind of just a constant source of inspiration. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to be here. That was a great little synopsis of my whole career. Do you have anything to add? <laughs> um, no, I think that was really, yeah, that was good. I mean, I'm pregnant now, so that's another thing. But yes. We can talk about that later. That's another mountain to climb. <laughs> I love it. Um, you started climbing when you were 11. How did you start? What got you into it? 
I was among the very first or second generation of kids who started climbing in a climbing gym, so in an artificial setting. Prior to me, people had to start climbing outside on cliffs, and so they had to live near the mountains and all this stuff. Um, And then when climbing gyms started to pop up, um, that was around when I was a young kid, and that's how I discovered it. I was at a little festival at a lake in Boulder, Colorado, um, and there was one of those, like, towers, you know, those little towers they have, and I climbed it with my cousins, and I just remember kind of, like, having this feeling of, oh, this is, like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, this feels hard, but it also feels kind of easy. There was, like, this fear, but it was a good kind, and there was, like, this sense of belonging. It was this really interesting feeling to have as, like, a young kid. Like, oh, this is what I want to do. And I just told my dad. I was like, I want to do that again. Um, So he enrolled me in, like, a kid's climbing course at the local gym. Yeah. And things just took off from there. Like, I basically didn't look back. I was a ski racer and a gymnast up until that point. And both of those sports, I was just like, I'm I'm just climbing now, Dad. This is what I'm doing. Was your dad into climbing before you? He wasn't, no. He started climbing with me. So he started climbing um, right when I started climbing. Uh, and he was really into it as well. He's a very active person, and he loves all sports everything that I do he wants to do Um, and that was kind of the beginning of that (laughs) that's so true I love your dad has such big bright energy it's so fun to be around it's like he kind of it's a magnet it is yeah (laughs) yes he's kind of exhausting (laughs) (laughs) fair for you to say I love it um (laughs) shout out to Tim Harrington and and this led you like eventually you became the, the national champion in sport climbing five times and and I guess like that's that's a huge run. That's five years in a row at the top of your sport. How old were you when you got into competitive climbing? Yeah, so climbing, co- competition climbing is very similar to uh, many other sports like gymnastics in that you can't compete in the adult category until you're 16. Um, so I did the youth the youth division for several years and did really well at junior nationals and then eventually started doing adult nationals. And I think I won... Maybe the first year I turned 16, I honestly can't remember. Um, but, you know, back then, obviously, it was like a little bit, competition climbing was a little bit of a different world. Like now, climbing is in the Olympics, and it's quite, it's the competition is quite a bit stiffer. Um, but yeah, I'm proud to say that, like, that was my start re- with really, like, setting goals, learning how to train, learning how to have sort of the mental ability to perform on demand. Um it started when I was really young and that was my background was was competitions yeah I'm just thinking in relation to like skiing and slope style like there wasn't too many women that came before me to set this example of like oh this is what you can do like I struggled to find that inspiration we had Christy Leskinen and Sarah Burke but aside from them there wasn't that many women being like presented in media and stuff did you have anyone to look up to yeah I think climbing is unique actually in that way because we had women like Lynn Hill to look up to who was kind of like the most badass climber of all time and still kind of is with some of the achievements that she accomplished um in she's done groundbreaking things in climbing for not just for women you know um and so when I was a young girl I kind of always was aware of that and there were other women as well like my 
a woman who became my climbing coach, Robin Herbisfield, she was a four-time world champion. Um, Lynn also was a world champion, but then she also did amazing things outdoors. And so I, I think it, climbing is interesting because, you know, even in the 90s, we had examples of women who were kind of crushing it mm-hmm. a lot, right along or ahead of the men in many ways. And so for me, I, I saw that and realized that climbing was a space for women just as much as it was for men. And that was really inspiring to me. Totally. I think that's part of what drew me to climbing too, was having Lynn Hill as an example of like, whoa, she is such a badass and she's doing things that men haven't done yet. Totally. I mean, groundbreaking things that were groundbreaking in the early 90s and are still groundbreaking today. (laughs) Yeah. still, it's really hard to repeat the stuff that she's done. Totally. How many times has her ascent on the nose been repeated? Uh, The nose in a day, I think, has only been repeated once by Tommy Caldwell. I believe that's the truth. I believe that is... Yes, I believe that's a fact. You can double check it later, um, but I'm pretty sure that it's just, and still only like, I think under 10 people have free climbed the nose over a period of days. You know, it's still considered like, if you free climb the nose in 10 days, you're still going to get a news article about you Wow. at this point, you know, in 2022. And she did it in 1993. That just gave me the chills. (laughs) That's incredible. And I don't think I realized that you were like among the first generation to actually climb on indoor rock. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it was like Chris Sharma was a little bit before me and Tommy Caldwell and Beth Rodden. They were all kind of like youth competition climbers who started on plastic. Um, And then it was really like me and and my generation and those that came after me. And now obviously it's like so common to start climbing in the climbing gym. Um, they, they're so super popular. The sport has totally exploded because of climbing gyms. Um, but yeah, back then a climbing gym was like, they looked a lot different. Um, they were generally built in like these old industrial areas. A lot of times it was like old movie theaters or something that had been converted into a climbing gym and they used ground up tire rubber as like the mats or pea gravel. So it was either pea gravel or ground up tire rubber. And it was like, they were super dirty and they were (laughs) super dark and dusty. And just like compared to today's like super clean, nice modern gyms with workspaces and all this stuff. It's just really funny to see and to realize that like, that was how a lot of us got our start. (laughs) That's rad. Yeah. And it just makes it so much more accessible to such a wider audience. Oh my God. Yeah. Climbing is so accessible now because you have gyms in literally every population center in this country and and much of the developed world. And it's like, it's amazing because even if you live in the inner inner city, you can have access to climbing more or less. It's not that, you know, there's a lot of organizations and programs that are trying to get a lot of people into climbing and make it super accessible and affordable. And I think that that's really cool about the sport. Yep. Yep. Something I struggle with, with the ski industry for sure. How expensive and kind of elitist it's been historically. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's tough with skiing though, right? Because it's like, you'd have to have like some sort of artificial ski hill in every city in order to expose a lot of people. Wildly expensive to build. I mean, yeah, it's like building a, a, you know, like a wave for surfing. Totally. It's It's happening. It's out there. Yeah. (laughs) It's just a little harder. You know, you can, you can essentially expose someone to climbing with like a 12 by 12 piece of wood if you want to. Yeah. Which is, which is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. That's super cool. Um, 
And talking about like the competition climbing, I know we've had conversations about it in the past and it's a pretty prevalent topic or like something that, I don't know, quite honestly from the outside looking in, it's, it's kind of an obvious thing that there's like a lot of different eating disorders that occur within the sport. Is there, there's like a term for that too, right? Sport induced. Oh yeah, I can't, I'm trying to think of what it is called. I feel like there's like a, um, there's definitely like a diagnosis of like the female athlete triad, which I've heard of like growing up. It was like the, the three characteristics that make like generally females, sometimes males um, kind of go down that path of disordered eating and, and kind of like body dysmorphia and like perfectionism and the desire to be in control of everything. And um, I definitely went through it. Um, it's hard to say like if I actually had a legitimate, you know, diagnosable eating disorder um Mm -hmm. but I definitely was trending down that path with a lot of habits that I had um and you know climbing is a is a gravity-based sport in that it's the opposite of something like skiing you're not using gravity you're fighting it Mm -hmm. and so it makes a lot of sense that the lighter you are the easier it is and once you realize that especially as a young uh, driven person um, it's really difficult to not go down that path. And it's really difficult when you see people before you who've gone down that path and achieved a lot of success. Right. Um, and so that was, you know, I was definitely a victim of that. I know a lot of my peers have been, a lot of the people who came before me were. The, the one thing that I think is, is an improvement from back then when, when I was competing in the early 2000s is that, it's, it's talked about more. So, um, people are more open to talking about it. They're more open to kind of expressing that it's not the right path because it honestly is just not sustainable. It's like a, it's like a short term fix. Um, it causes a lot of injuries. It causes burnout. Um, it's just overall not a great way to approach a sport as we all know. And then the other thing that I think has helped, and I'm not saying the problem is completely gone, and I don't know if it ever will be, honestly, um, is the style of competition climbing has changed quite a bit, even with like the lead climbing, but the bouldering in particular, it's more explosive, it's more dynamic. You actually need a lot of power and a lot of like fast twitch muscle in order to be successful. And it's also starting to look that way in, in, the, lead, in the lead climbing and the rope climbing as well. Um, and so they, the style has changed and therefore the athletes have started to adapt their bodies to that. And so you do see athletes who are much more powerful, much more muscular, who actually train to put on muscle as opposed to the opposite, which is just to be as thin as possible. Um, so that's been helpful to, to witness. Right. And it's kind of a balance of being thin, but really strong. Hey, it's a total, it's a total strength to weight ratio. It's kind of like looking at a graph of like, you, you look at your weight and you want to get it you know, low enough to a point where you're not carrying anything extra, but you also need the muscle to be able to execute really difficult, powerful moves that are oftentimes explosive and muscle weighs more than fat. And so you have to kind of like balance all that out. And, um, you know, being now being pregnant, it's like a whole new like mental battle that I'm going through. Um, sort of like I, I'm re going through everything that I went through when I was a teenager, only with a much more mature perspective Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but it's definitely a struggle it's not it's not an easy thing to go through I don't think yeah I would imagine that would be like 
severely affect your mental state too at a young age. Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's shaped who I am in a lot of ways and it's definitely, um, I I wouldn't say in a good or a bad way. I think it just is who I am. I've like accepted it. I still struggle with it. It's still in on my mind. It's not something that I don't think, I don't think it's ever going to completely go away. Um, but I can approach it with more maturity and more perspective than I did before. What things have helped you get to that place? Um, I think essentially just going through the process of recognizing that, I mean, I would, I, there was a point where I hated climbing so much because I was exhausted and I put so much pressure on myself and I just never wanted to go climbing. I just forced it upon myself. And so I had to go through the process of really questioning whether or not I wanted to, to continue to do this and to make it my lifestyle and my career and continue to have it be my passion. And I kind of had to take a step back, um, and delve into some other disciplines, some other styles of climbing, rediscover why I loved it. And so I think going through that process really helped me, but it was a long process, obviously multi-years, um, went into that. Basically my entire twenties was spent trying to reckon with it and, Mm -hmm. and deal with it. And then other other people, peers who who were going through the same thing, who when we kind of were able to come out of it, we were able to talk about it and have real kind of honest conversations about what we were going through was really helpful. And then for the last like three or four years, I've had a mental health coach who's helped me immensely deal with stuff like that and deal with the the cycle of like, you know, punishing myself versus kind of being proud of myself and um, having a little bit more self-love. Yeah. It's been a long road. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And then diving back into it, which I think a lot of women probably can relate to. Like when you do become pregnant, like your body goes through all these changes. It's beautiful and it's powerful, but it can also be really difficult. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been such a roller coaster. I feel like I've gone back in time some days I feel like I go back in time and I'm like my 19 year old self again just like a little bit self-loathing a little bit dark um and then I remember that I'm like growing a human inside of me but it's easy to just say that and be like oh yeah but you're having a baby like it's beautiful and it's awesome but to be actually going through it is like quite a different experience and it's it is beautiful and it is awesome and it is nothing that I thought it would be (laughs) (laughs) like I just thought I don't know I guess I just was under the impression that I would have to be totally ready for it that I would have to like completely give up everything that I was doing that I would have to kind of um question my identity and like become not an athlete and you know become just like this vessel for this other (laughs) other human for nine months and beyond um and now I've realized that I can continue to be an athlete. I still am an athlete. I still am exactly who I am. I can still train hard. I can still try hard. I can still basically do all the things that I did before. It's just slightly different and slightly harder. But I'm, I've shifted that in my brain to think of it as more like, oh, this is a challenge and this is training and this is awesome. And I'm going to come out of this stronger than I went into it. Yeah, I, I found it really fascinating when you told me you were like, now you're working with a trainer who is getting you ready for birth and you're like preparing for this episode in your life. 
Yeah. I mean, I didn't think about it either, but someone said, maybe she said it to me. Someone said that to me. They're like, they're like, this will be one of the most physical, it'll be one of the most physical things most women ever do in their entire lives. It's like a massively long, like endurance challenge (gasps) and it's incredibly physical. And she's like, the better you, the stronger you are going into it, the better off you're going to be and the better off you're going to recover and all these things. And I was like, Oh, I didn't really think about it like that. I mean, maybe I've done harder things physically. I actually don't know because I haven't given birth yet, but, um, I definitely think it's going to be hard. And so, yeah, I'm working on like getting stronger so that I can handle it as yeah. best I can and not be completely destroyed afterwards, which still might happen, but, um, it's kind of a fun, exciting challenge. And it's, I'm starting to be like pretty grateful that I can go through it versus, kind of like, ugh, you know, male athletes don't have to go through this if they want kids, <laughs> but we do. <laughs> yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Cause I think like, I know that I'm so grateful for all these women, professional athletes that are maintaining their sponsorship and still pursuing their career at the same time as starting families. I feel like that's relatively new in the action sports world, probably not as much in climbing. Like I think that's happened and women have continued to have their careers and have sponsors and stuff. But was that something that you were like, nervous to do were you held back by that at all or how did that come across to your sponsors like yeah I mean I think it's I still think it's new in climbing also like there we still don't have that many examples there's a lot of like female like mountaineers not a lot I mean I'm thinking of one I'm thinking of like Hillary Nelson um and who've like continued their career afterwards but in climbing I still feel like it's it's not as many. And, and a lot of them, you know, they don't continue it with the same like intensity that a lot of men do. And I think that might be natural. It might just be the, the way things are or the way things go. Um, but me thinking up back, thinking back when I was in my twenties, I always thought like, Oh, when I'll, when I have a kid, like that might be the end. I'll have to figure out something else, you mm-hmm. know, cause I just didn't have a good example. I kind of feel like society just told us that that's what happened to women. Um, that you put your career on hold, especially if you're a professional athlete and maybe your career just ends. Um, and I do think it's significantly harder for us. Like it's way harder to go through this experience and then come back and have like the drive and the motivation and the physical ability to like, get back to the level that you were at before it's just harder just is like that's there's no way to argue it otherwise I don't think yeah um and but that said I feel like I'm among (laughs) puppy (laughs) dog oh is Adrian Adrian's home (laughs) yeah we are we're recording a podcast right now (laughs) okay that's okay okay um where was I? I was talking about women being pregnant and athletes. I, oh, yeah. So I think I'm among like the f- a first like really big wave of female climbers who are kind of pregnant, having kids, sharing that process. I think before it was a lot harder to share this, the process because, you know, back, you know, social media now, it's so easy to like be vulnerable, share what's going on share your story and I think a lot of women see that and then they're like oh wow I can do that too that's awesome like we don't have to stop being athletes we don't have to stop having dreams we don't have to stop trying to perform at our highest level um I think that that's kind of like as much as I 
don't like social media in a lot of ways. I think one of the, that's been something that's been really comforting for me is watching other women's processes and, and seeing how willing they are to share those stories with a wider audience. Totally. Like I feel historically women did just bow down and announce their retirement and like kind of yeah. just fade away and not continue to be active within the sport, which I don't know, that's totally respectable if that's your personal choice, but I feel like the door's open now and it is like, it's it's being shared. And I think as a consumer, like there's a lot of moms in this world or a lot of potential moms and, and moms that have been in existence, like your mom and my mom that like love to see that stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you hit it that was a correct way to say it. Like it now it's a choice. Yeah. Whereas before it didn't really feel like a choice. Like, of course it's fine to just bow out and retire and, and raise children and have that be your path. But like for a while that kind of felt like the only path if you wanted kids. Yeah. And for men, it wasn't really like that. They had many options and now it feels like we also have options. Um, but I think there's still a, there's still a little bit of a fight there. Like there's still, you got to be a little bit gritty and you got to like still kind of try to prove people wrong. Like being pregnant, it's like, I can't tell you how many times I get asked like, Oh, well, when are you going to stop climbing? And I'm like, well, (laughs) I'm not going to stop climbing while I'm pregnant. Like that's, I've always climbed. Like, why would I stop? (laughs) Yeah. That whole like theory of like talking to women about their body and their pregnancy is always miffed me. Like my mom skied until skied with me in her belly until she was eight months. Yeah. And it's like, totally. I was talking to Adrian about this the other day. It was like, and his whole perspective was like, we have this innate feeling that like collectively we have some sort of say, I mean, and it's obviously also culturally and politically right now, but we have the right to say what happens with like child rearing and childbirth. Like we have the right to impose our opinion on someone else when it comes to that subject only. It's like a weird cultural societal thing. And and so people are just, they feel like they can give you their opinion no matter what. And it's so bizarre weird. because they wouldn't do that in any other situation. Like if someone saw you at the gym just having had knee surgery, they wouldn't walk up to you and be like, are you sure you should be doing that? Like (laughs) nobody does that. (laughs) Yeah. But if you're pregnant, they feel like that there's no longer like any personal space with that. Like they're totally allowed to say something to you, which is just a really interesting thing to me. It's really interesting when you take it into the context of like having bands on our bodies. Like it's totally relatable. People think that they can control you or at least have their opinion and voice it. Totally. They think they can have an opinion. It's And yeah. And I mean, I guess I could see like, I guess I could maybe see if there's like an extreme. I can't even think of an extreme example because like most of the time, I mean, in general, every pregnant person is going to be doing what they think is best for them and for their baby. And so I just don't see the point in like questioning that to, to them. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And you guys have like between you and your um, your newlywed as yeah. of last December, um, you and Adrian, it seems to me like you've just continued on life as normal as you possibly can be. Yeah. I mean, we've definitely as much as we can be, we've continued to live our normal lives and we're trying to, um, you know, we're hoping that when the baby comes, we're going to he's going to be able to kind of like work into our lifestyles a little bit you know I I know that having a child like changes things and I know that it you know you have to take this this step of being like less selfish and I think we're both ready for that like 
and we have changed a few things like adrian's not gonna go on a big expedition for the next year or maybe beyond that um you know and obviously like in my pregnancy i'm not taking like huge whippers <laughs> you yeah. know like i've i have i have some lines and where i'm being cautious um but at the same time, someone said this to me and I thought it was really interesting. They were like, having a child is actually very selfish. Like, you're bringing a human being into this world for you to give you, like, um, some sort of satisfaction, to give you purpose, to make you, you know, give you responsibility to all of these things. And I, when I thought about it that way, I was like, you know what? That's kind of true, actually. Most things we do are selfish. And I think having kids is also maybe kind of selfish. That's really interesting. That's an interesting perspective. I've talked about this with other friends too of like, oh, okay, so you like went through this professional skiing career and then you were like, I'm going to have kids. And I've asked that question, like, did you instantly feel like you had this new purpose? Because I would imagine for myself, if I was going to like put skiing on hold, it'd be hard to find that new purpose. But it seems like if you're starting a family, like you have it. Yeah, I mean, I think I have... I think I'm still a bit selfish, like, honestly. I think I still have a purpose, or I still have that, I have that new purpose and that new feeling of, like, oh, my God, we're going to bring a human being into the world, and it's going to be, again, I think it's a little selfish, like, it's going to be so cool to share our lives with this new person and show them, like, the magic of, like, what we do. I can't wait to take him to Lake Tahoe. Like, I can't wait to see the world through his eyes and, like, have all these it's going to feel totally new and different and at the same time like I also see it as kind of a challenge like I have always loved big challenges I've always loved things that are really hard and logistically complicated and take a lot of effort and I think having a kid is all of that um and so it's like I was I I wouldn't say I was bored with my career but I was kind of like well I could just keep doing this I could just keep doing these things and I could keep pushing myself and having all these personal goals. But I could also try to do these things with a child and have this other part of my life that is also so fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And that is actually now those personal goals, instead of being like kind of like, nah, okay, like that's interesting. Now they're really interesting again because I have this other challenge along with it. Um, So yeah, I've started to think about it like that. And I don't think, I mean, maybe a lot of people don't think about it like that, but I'm like, oh, this is a new challenge. It's a new adventure and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be hard, but that's what we've always done. Once again, you're inspiring me. That just made me (laughs) smile so big. I think of you like part of our relationship that I've been so drawn to is like, you have taught me how to set goals. Like I remember one time sitting down with you and you were like, okay, like for the next, I think it was like two or three years. You were like, these are my goals and I'm going to tick them off. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're like dialed and organized and you have these things that you're driving towards, which like in climbing, I feel like it's a lot more goal oriented sport, right? Like you have a project, you're going to go climb this grade, on this wall, this specific climb, and you're going to sit there for a month, however long, and toil with it until Mm -hmm. you get it done. Or you're going to El Capitan, and you're going after Golden Gate, and you want to do it in sub-24 hours. Like, that's a very distinct goal. Where in skiing, I've always approached it as being like, honestly, since I stopped racing, racing, I was like, I just want to have as much fun as possible. Mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to take that passion away from me. So I didn't set goals. And it was kind of this intentional thing. In retrospect, like, when I met you, I was like, oh, Like setting goals gives you something to work towards, to drive towards. I think it was like right after you told me that, that I was like, I want to climb Denali and I want to get into high altitude climbing. Totally inspired from you and Adrian. 
Um, but that's always been something that's like so cool, I think, about like your process and how you set these audacious goals and then you just go for it. Can you tell me a little bit about like that period in time? Like basically you moved to Tahoe, right? And that was like when you were done competing and climbing and you had met you met Adrian on Everest. Tell me about Everest. Um, yeah, so Everest was definitely in that period of time that I mentioned earlier where I was kind of trying to figure out why I loved climbing, if I still loved climbing, if I wanted it to be my career. Um, at the time, I did have a real, you know, I, had, I was on the North Face team, so I had a really good sponsor, a lot of support, but I was wavering on, like, what do I do? Like, mm-hmm. And like you said, like, goals are great, and I've always been, I don't think I could live without having goals, and I don't think I could have a passion without having goals, but at the same time, like, I was pretty bogged down into, like, this pressure of, like, what do I do next? What's the next thing? And... I was given the opportunity to go to Mount Everest, which was sort of a random one, honestly. It was, like, pretty out of left field. Um, But, you know, thankfully, I took that opportunity and was like, okay, well, this will be cool. This will be a good step back. I didn't even really see it as a goal. I saw it as, like, an experience, and I saw it as a way for me to open my eyes to a different style of climbing. I'd never really been in the big mountains before. I'd never really been to altitude. I'd never experienced any of that stuff. I was just so focused on winning and performing that I didn't allow any room for experiences like that up until that age, which I was in my early twenties at that time. Um, so I went on this trip and it was hard. It was really hard in, in ways that I hadn't experienced before. It was like really suffering. And I wasn't that used to suffering. I was used to suffering in the gym for a couple hours, but I wasn't used to like suffering at altitude and feeling sick and feeling bad and not wanting to continue and feeling scared and all of those things. Um, And so that was cool because that kind of exposed me to that side of climbing that's like, oh, wow, this is adventurous and this is suffering and I'm still having to push through. It was like that type two fun thing. Totally. Um, And that's where I met Adrian, which just, you know, we hit it off and... And that's when I moved to Tahoe because he was in Tahoe and I was still living in Boulder, like kind of toiling away in the climbing gym every day, training a lot. And as soon as I came back from Everest, I um, packed up my Subaru and just like drove out here. No way. Yeah. And we like spent, (laughs) we like climbed at Lover's Leap and went to the lake and just like had fun. We had fun climbing, which again, like goals are great, but sometimes you can lose that like, you know, that true essence of why you do things. And I think that for me coming to Tahoe, meeting Adrian, I sort of rediscovered why I love climbing. And didn't you take a photo on top of Mount Everest with your cell phone that was on the cover of Nat Geo? Yeah, I can't remember if it was on the cover. It was on their Instagram. And it was okay. like right when Instagram started. Um, so it was the first Instagram from the summit of Everest, which now I think there's probably like so <laughs> many. All over. Yeah, totally. Um, but it was like, you know, the first, I think Instagram had started like two years before that or something. And I, we were one of the early adopters of it, which is so interesting to think about. Um, and I took a selfie on the summit, which also was like kind of a funny thing back then. Yeah. <laughs> and I posted it because we had satellite internet at Camp 4. So I posted it from Camp 4 on Everest. Um, and it kind of blew up, um, which is pretty, which was pretty funny. So you meet Adrian, who is known for big mountains and high altitude climbing. He's taught me a ton about it. Um, You moved to Tahoe. You weren't really that into trad climbing at that time. No. So trad climbing was like this whole different discipline that I'd never really given any time to because when you're a sport climber and a competition climber, like if you want to perform well, you have to just do those things. And so I never 
delved into trad climbing until I moved here. Um, and Adrian was a rock climber, but more from the side of like trad climbing, adventuring, mountaineering, high altitude climbing. And so he was the one that showed me what trad climbing, like I knew what it was, but I never had really any interest in it until then, um, until I moved to California and was kind of exposed to like climbing on granite and, um, just all the kind of becoming a beginner again, really. I became a beginner again for several years while I learned how to like climb granite, play skier, take falls. Like it was a very scary process too. It's just a totally, it's a different beast new element of your sport and I remember the day we met actually was uh I was <laughs> I was climbing what is the climb called oh um jam sessions jam sessions yeah 510b which at the time was like I would honestly say it's like above my grade of climbing <laughs> but my partner Aaron Bushy was like you've climbed this so many times and he just pulled the ropes left the gear and pulled the rope I climbed it once like while his gear was placed mm-hmm. and then we tore the gear out and I was like, okay, I'm going for my first like really hard trad lead. And I was like near the top and it's basically like a pretty wide, like fist wide crack mm-hmm. that kind of goes diagonally. There's really small feet and I'm like in what I would consider the crux for myself and trying to place this piece. And I look down and I'm like, oh my God, that's Emily Harrington and Adrian Ballinger <laughs> and they're at the base of this climb. And I'm like, full Elvis Presley leg like the, my legs like a sewing machine just shaking up there I remember the Elvis leg <laughs> do you yeah. yeah and I was like so embarrassed and looking down and like okay it was your I have to send but you were like cheering me on you're like yeah you've got it and then I sent and I don't know how I think I was so scared of falling on my gear that I was like I've got to do this and I came down and that's when I met you and I was like yes this amazing woman that lives in Tahoe that rock climbs and this is so cool and that was like such a special moment probably like the first moment that you truly inspired me to make to the top so that was really cool for me (laughs) oh that's such a cute story yeah I kind of thought it was normal I feel like back then I thought it was like totally normal for you to be leading 510 yeah I didn't realize that that was such a momentous occasion (laughs) well I think then I broke it down I was like okay now I gotta like lead some five nines like get really comfortable in five nines yeah um but that was like a leap for me for sure so you move to tall you start trad climbing um, you start setting more audacious goals. You kind of refound your love for climbing, mm-hmm. it sounds like, as you changed into a different genre and you just kind of built on that. What was yeah. that like for you? Were you setting goals initially with like high altitude climbing with Adrian or did that kind of parallel to like bigger multi-day, multi-pitch? Yeah, I was setting both. I yeah. was like, oh, there's this guy that I really like hanging out with who climbs big mountains. Like, I want to climb more big mountains. So we did a lot of things in that fir- those first few years. I think I climbed, climbed like, I, you know, I kind of stepped it back from Everest, but I climbed Mont Blanc and Ama de Blom. And um, we even went to Makalu, like, two years later, fifth tallest peak in the world. And, um, and then, you know, in the seasons which were good in California, we were climbing at Lover's Leap. We were climbing at Donner Summit. And then we started to go to Yosemite. And that's when... Yosemite kind of piqued my interest as like, oh, I should try to climb El Cap if I'm going to go down this path um, because El Cap is the one of the biggest, most difficult, most famous historic walls in the world for rock climbing. And it's here in my backyard now. And so I, I started becoming inspired by that goal just because it did seem so audacious for me. It did seem like this sort of ultimate. Um, and... Yeah, so that's when I started kind of working towards that 
um, and utilizing my background as a competition climber and as a sport climber, the, the strength and technique I gained from that background. Um, but then also all these new skills that I was learning from, from everything from trad climb to honestly, like being in the mountains and, and suffering in the mountains, uh, was also, also came in handy up there. Mm-hmm. What was the first route that you climbed on El Cap? I, I climbed Golden Gate on El Cap over six days with Adrian. Um, I originally, I started working on it with my friend Cedar Wright that season. It was the season of 2015 and Adrian was guiding on Mount Everest that year. Um, but that was the year of the earthquake and mm-hmm. he actually came home early because the you know because of the earthquake and my friend cedar like wasn't that psyched and then adrian was psyched he was like i'll support you i'll go up there like it'll be fun we'll figure it out together we'll figure out how to set up a portal edge we'll figure out how to haul we'll do all these things and um it was interesting i can't remember how it came to be but we also had a filmer with us our friend john glassberg who was also just kind of like yeah i'd done a few projects with him at that point and he was just like yeah i want to film you on it so let's do it. And he came too. And so we just like junk showed our way up the wall over the course of six days. And I managed to do it kind of barely. <laughs> barely. Like it was a push. Oh yeah. I was suffered really hard. I barely did like, you know, and it's like, it's hard and it's humbling because when you climb 514 sport and you've been doing that since you were a teenager, you kind of feel like you're a badass and like, you know, everything and you're an expert <laughs> at climbing and you know, like, five nine on l cap like that should be so easy that should be so mellow um but it's actually not it's a totally different ball game it's um it's just almost a different sport in many ways and so Mm -hmm. i kind of got my ass handed to me in a lot of ways but i stuck it out um i tried really hard i dug really deep i kind of swallowed my ego and i came away with a send but yeah a barely by the skin of my teeth send (laughs) <laughs> and free rider, which was your recent feat, shares some pitches with Golden Gate, right? No, I did Golden Gate in a day. Oh, you did Golden Gate in a day. Yeah. That's right. So, Favorite. well, the, so the the way it all kind of manifested is Alex Honnold, my friend, was trying to like we all kind of knew he was gonna try to free solo El Cap via the free rider, um, and the free rider does share a lot of pitches with the golden gate the golden gate's a little bit harder than the free rider it branches off um like two-thirds of the way up and go- has its own line but the free rider goes straight up and um I-, I chose golden gate originally because i thought it would actually suit my style better mm-hmm. it's more face climbing it's less of that like five nine like burly kind of like thuggy climbing mm-hmm. um and it's more technical and like more like sport climbing so that's why i chose it originally but then through over the years after I sent Golden Gate over the course of multiple days, um, I was still climbing Yosemite a bunch, kind of fi- trying to figure out what to do next. And Alex Honnold was like, I, I was remember I was at dinner with Beth Rodden one night and he came over and he was like, do you want to do a free rider with me in a day? Like the day after <laughs> yes. tomorrow. And I was like, okay, like, sure. You know, like I'd never been up there. I'd never tried those pitches above, you know, where the Golden Gate split off. And I knew that it was because he was just, you know, he did this with a bunch of people over the course of like several years, like just practicing for his solo. Um, And so we went up there and we, we climbed it in a day and I didn't send, like I didn't complete all the pitches. I didn't climb them cleanly. Um, But it was like this huge, awesome day. It was like so much fun. It was so hard. Alex pushed me. He really like pushed me and was kind of like, no, you can do this. Like you got to like, 
you got to like dig deep, but you can do this whenever I was like, oh, I can't climb this pitch or I'm too tired or whatever. Um, he really pushed me. And then the other thing that was so cool to see was his level of comfort and his level of fitness mm-hmm. to like keep climbing hard throughout the course of like a 14 hour day, which he would have been a lot faster if it weren't for me. Like we were pretty slow considering, um, <laughs> and it was all because of me, but like, it was just like this, it was like a, a light bulb went off where I was like, Oh my God, like free climbing all cap in a day is rad. Like I always knew that people did it like people like Lynn Hill, but I never had it in my mind that like, it should be something I should try. And then I was like, Oh, this is like a really cool way to show like true mastery of something, uh-huh. you know, you need like endurance and stamina and the ability to suffer and logistical skills as well. And then also like strength and technical skills to rock climb really hard up there. And so then I was like, what should I, you know, what should I, what, what route should I try to do in a day? And I actually decided that I wanted to try to do the golden gate in a day because it was just a really cool rounding out of like a, progression it was a very clear show of my progression as a rock climber like I barely did it in six days can I do it in 24 hours or less um and when you're climbing something in a day I'm assuming the technique changes like drastically right yeah I mean it changes a lot because when you're climbing it over the course of many days you kind of like are going camping it's vertical camping so you bring a lot of stuff it's heavy and it's slow um it's a lot of work in that way like you're you're bringing all this stuff up with you but it's also kind of awesome because you're you're chilling on ledges and you have good food and you just like only do a few pitches a day and it's pretty mellow whereas doing it in a day you have to take you eliminate all that so you have less stuff with you um but you have to figure out how to like stay fueled and stay hydrated and move quickly enough so you don't bonk um and then also like safety wise you end up cutting some corners mm-hmm. um like you're simul climbing right we simul climbed i simul climbed with alex on the easy pitches so mm-hmm. that means like we're we're climbing together i'm on one end of the rope he's on the other and i'm placing placing piece placing gear between us so if one of us falls we're not going to die but it's super dangerous because mm-hmm. um, your falls you are can, bigger your falls your are bigger if you know if the second person falls they pull the first person off with which is super dangerous it's a big no-no in simul climbing. Um, and the, the ter- yeah, the first person, and generally like you're wanting to cover really long distances with a single rack, which gen- or a double rack of trad climbing gear, which generally you use all that gear in, in the course of one or two pitches. Now I was trying to space my gear out over 1200 feet, you know, not stopping. Right. And so you're just take you're just doing huge runouts. You're taking a lot more risk. Um, and you have to be really comfortable on, on moderate terrain, which, you know, even for someone who rock climbs at a really high level can, is a different headspace. It's totally. a very different space to be in. I mean, I'm sure there's like comparisons to every sport, but there's definitely a comparison in skiing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's so many comparisons. I mean, even learning how, like in Tahoe, I guess my natural progression with rock climbing was just through trad climbing. Mm -hmm. The people, the partners that I was climbing with, they all trad climbed. So I learned how to trad climb. And I remember like learning how to lead. I was like, whoa, the mental 
fortitude you have to have to place a piece of gear and climb above it and be solid that your gear is going to hold and confident in yourself that you can like climb above that gear and place another piece and continue on that translated so much to skiing for me yes and even being comfortable like climbing a couloir or like overexposure which i think is why like people like you pro skiers actually are really good have a really good headspace when it comes to like leading trad because there is that self-trust and confidence that like someone like me actually who started in a climbing gym like I didn't have to have that when I started climbing Mm. because it was safe and controlled and you're taught that like everything is safe and controlled and you literally can just trust you don't have to trust yourself necessarily like you have to trust the rope which is like you know whatever but it's it's a very different mental space and when you start out climbing in the gym or sport climbing you don't have to deal with that level of exposure and risk quite as much Mm -hmm. um which is why I think like when I go climbing with you I'm like when we went and climbed in Peru on the Sphinx and you (laughs) were like leading 510 when you'd only ever climbed led 510 like once before and you were flashing it I was like holy shit like that's a different headspace and that comes from skiing (laughs) that comes from you I swear I was like this is Emily believes in me so much more than I believe in myself um yeah we went on a trip to Peru a few years ago and we climbed La Esfinge which you had done this route before yeah but basically it ends at 17,500 feet it's considered a big wall it's a big wall makes it a big wall like what's that definition so this is all very interesting this is like getting into the nitty-gritty of climbing but it's like it's kind of like discussing ski mountaineering I think it's like big wall climbing is like nobody really knows what their rule you know like there's rules there's there's not rules actually is what it is there's not rules there's just like kind of gray areas um and what I would consider a big wall to be (laughs) is a wall in which the majority of people would spend the night on in order to reach the summit Right. Um, so, you know, you can't count like a multi-pitch, like like a five-pitch route on Blackwall as a big wall. Even um, if you put it's a, a portal edge up and yeah, sleep on it. Because yeah, because in general, <laughs> you don't sleep on it. But in general, on the Sphinx in Peru, um, it's like well over 2,000 feet tall. How many That's pitches is it? I think it was like, how many was it? I mean, the top got really wandering and weird, didn't it? It was like yes. maybe 30 pitches. The most we simul climbed drag. a lot at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it was like fourth class, like wanderiness. But it's hardcore because it's at altitude, which adds this whole other element that a lot of people who haven't been to altitude don't realize. And then that wall was also uh, east facing, which I think in the southern hemisphere it means that it went into the shade. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really cold. It was cold. In the afternoon. Like yeah. really cold. And it gets really windy up there. And it was such an adventure. We had such a great adventure. But you like flashed a 510 on lead so you did it on your first try at like 16,000 feet but caveat you did not tell me it was 510 that's true (laughs) so I go into this pitch thinking like Emily's gonna just put me on stuff that like I can obviously climb (laughs) and I like climb it and didn't think anything of it and then when you came up you were like that was 510 and I was like it was like uh I think that was actually my hardest lead at that time yeah it was, it was 510C or it was five, 510C maybe. I, or 510B at I kinda, altitude or something. I think I, I looked know. at that guidebook and didn't really know what the grade was because I'd forgotten. And I was like, oh, it's 5.9. And then I re-looked as you were climbing. And I was like, oh, it's actually 5.10. <laughs> and it's R, which means run out. So it was like very high consequential, very impressive. Like not a lot. I mean, not a lot of climbers at your level <laughs> would just like step up and do that. 
Uh, I want to say ignorance is bliss, but I honestly feel like when you have a partner and a friendship and the person believes in you and they're like, you can do this. Oh yeah. You totally like internally are like, okay, if Emily thinks I can do this, I can do this, which I feel like we've probably been there on skis too, right? Oh yeah. Like when we skied code epoxy. Yeah. Same thing. It's like when the other person believes in you and they're like, just do it. Like this is chill. You're like, oh, okay. I get the same, I have the same experience when I climb with Alex Honnold. I'm like, I climb way better than I normally would. Adrian likes to say that it's like when you exceed your potential. Right. You just like surpass your, your conceived potential. Totally. Because the other person believes in you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is like such a cool thing. And you just brought up Code Epoxy, which was a hilarious adventure. It was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> we had gone to Code Epoxy. Adrian and you got me interested in high altitude climbing. And we had gone to Cotopaxi and Cayambe maybe a few years previous. Yeah, and which is in Ecuador. Yeah, Two epically volcanoes. failed on both of them. Yeah. Like, just didn't make it near the top. Actually, on Cotopaxi, we made it like 300 feet away from the top. We were super close to the Super top. close. And then there was a crazy windstorm, and we all had to back down. Um, there was other things, too. But anyways, we came down. And then years later, we're like, we should go do that again. The volcano erupted in between that, too. We thought we would never make it back to climb that mountain because it, it erupted. Yeah. And it was erupting for like four years. Yeah. Like maybe weeks after we were there. Yeah. Yeah. So we go back down there, but it was kind of a strike mission. Um, for those that don't know, Adrian has a company called Alpenglow Expeditions and they run amazing adventures all over the world from Everest to Peru to here in our own backyard with the Tahoe Via. And, um, he ran this like kind of your beginner climbing trip yeah. at altitude to Cotopaxi. And we did what was called like a rapid ascent, right? Yeah. We just did a rapid, we slept in hypoxico tents for, for maybe not like long five enough. days. Yeah. You're supposed to sleep in them for like a month. And we did it for like five days and just showed up and, tr- and climbed to 19,000 feet. <laughs> Basically like, I think I was three days on the ground yeah. in Ecuador. Yes. Like flew in, landed, caught a bus there. My flight got fun, like got a little funky on the way there met you we like acclimatized to 15,000 feet or something came down had Thanksgiving dinner and then we like woke up at midnight that night and went to the top and we went to the top and we suffered hard because we weren't acclimatized I mean the last like 500 feet I just remember being like super nauseous super dizzy and then I was in my mind like oh my god I don't know how I'm going to be able to put my skis on and ski off the summit because I feel so terrible (laughs) <laughs> yeah we're like when I put my skis on you were historically like, I've been so like I feel fine skis yeah we're good we're losing altitude now but it hit me harder on the way down oh that's right you like, threw up yeah I threw up <laughs> I remember that but I that remember a of moment it. of standing there and being like okay there's like a tiny crevasse and I was like I know that we can jump this and I jumped it and then I turned around and you were like I don't know and I was like you can do it yeah. for sure and then you aired it and you landed it and it was perfect it was perfect it was so that that mountain is so cool because it is like there's it's it's beginner ish but once you put skis on your feet like there's a lot of holes yeah and you're not you don't have a rope on <laughs> totally there's not like what I would describe as being like a very distinct like this is a ski line this is what right. we're gonna do on the way down we kind of like followed our up track yeah, we did down as a but I think it was a great run like we actually Skiing had pretty really good, good conditions yeah. yeah it was really good that was because I went fun. back and did it again for the wedding yes and the skiing was less good <laughs> yeah talk about that you had a wedding party climb a high altitude peak we How did was that we um we got married in Ecuador. Adrian and I got married there because it's one of our favorite places. We both spent a lot of time there. We had this whole idea that like, wouldn't it be cool if we could <laughs> combine like an adventure and some suffering in before the wedding that was going to be at the beach. 
Um, and so we, we opened the trip up, Album Glow opened the trip up to like 12 people. We thought maybe 12 people would join us to climb Cotopaxi and it would be fun and whatever. Adrian's climbed it like, you know, 50 times or something like that. And then it filled up immediately. Like 12 people were like, yeah, I'm in. So we're like, oh, well maybe we'll do 16. And then we just kept like, people kept signing up, people kept signing up. And then 42 people eventually signed up to oh climb Cotopaxi. <laughs> and I'm talking like people who are who were like me like sport climbers who'd never put on crampons never been above you know eight thousand <laughs> feet and had no idea what they were getting into didn't understand the you know people who like don't run they don't understand like that type of like cardio suffering endurance suffering um signed up to climb this mountain and we had a day like we had the first time we tried to climb Cotopaxi, where it was howling wind like just blowing you over hammering and super suffering and it was so awesome to watch all of these people who really had no idea they thought they were going on vacation in ecuador and they were gonna like hike to the top of this beautiful <laughs> volcano and they were just getting the shit kicked out of them and they i mean i was really worried all day actually about every everyone I'm and sure. everyone's safety and all these things um but in the end it was just so memorable and i'm just so glad that they all had to go through that and suffer and like have that experience because those experiences are really, really cool. And afterwards they couldn't stop talking about it. And most of those people have gone to me, come to me and been like, when can we do it again? Oh What's gosh. the next mountain? What should I do? That is <laughs> and I'm so like, do cool. you not remember <laughs> how much you suffered up there and how much you told me you hated it? <laughs> but it's character to, like building. Totally. Like you learn so much about yourself and then exactly what, just going back, like you're pushing through the perceived limits that you put upon yourself. Yeah. It was so awesome to watch. I loved it. That it was, was like amazing. one of those moments where I was like really taking a lot of joy and like watching these people go through these like really <laughs> intense experiences. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. And then your wedding was like on this beautiful beach in Ecuador. You had like a pretty, I would call it like untraditional wedding. Like you kind of did it your way. We did, yes. And it was awesome. We It was one of those things where we had no idea how it was going to turn out. We like didn't really have a whole lot of control over it. We kind of just put our trust in these random Ecuadorian sisters to organize it all for us because they speak Spanish and we didn't really. And um, it worked out as perfect as it could possibly be. It was beautiful. Yeah, that was that was amazing. Um, and then did you go on a honeymoon? Yeah, we went on a honeymoon. We learned how to, um, we're total kooks at surfing and we like yes, that's right. dove in and went to um, Panama and did like two separate surf camps <laughs> and just like had goals, like, of course. And we were like, we're going to learn how to surf. We're going to be surfers. And we just like, you know, we, it was like not a traditional honeymoon. We like woke up at six every morning and went surfing and then like had lunch and then went surfing again. And we're just like really intense about it. Very Emily and Adrian. Like yeah. <laughs> we're diving into this. We're getting it. Yeah. I think I would be the same on vacation too. I'm very kinesthetic. Can't stop yes, moving. Totally. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. That's rad. Um, but we kind of sidebar like before really talking about your ascent in a day oh that's right yeah yeah so how many years like did it take you once you set this goal to actually accomplish it uh well so i i climbed golden gate in 2015 over the course of six days and then i did the golden gate in a day in 2020 um so it was a, a five-year mission basically mm-hmm and you tried and and unsuccessfully. Yeah, like, I tried unsuccessfully. Like you know, you, you think about it. You think about it more like attempting a mountain. Um, it's like the, each try is like the result of 
months of preparation and build up and rehearsing small sections. And then you get that one try, maybe one or two tries a season. So I think I tried three separate times over the course of like two years. Um, and then I did it on my fourth try. Yep. Yep. That's right. And there's like this, the photo to me that sticks out a ton, which Adrian texted me when you like had done this was you at the top with your iPhone and the timer. And it was like sub 24. Yeah. <laughs> Please tell me you had another device timing this is in. No, no, you just no. use your phone. No, we just use our phones because <laughs> it's like, because the whole 24 thing is like, it's not as like it's not like Strava or anything like it's not as like strict like this is the time that you did it in it's just like the idea of starting on the at the ground on the ground and like not stopping until you get to the summit and like sub 24 hours is just like a good marker of like oh in a day you know so I I never say like I did Golden Gate in 21 hours and 13 minutes and 57 seconds I'm always like oh I did it in a day um because that's like the goal right that's like the benchmark we don't like think about the time as we're not as nerdy about time and speed as unless you're like doing the nose speed record or something like that but the whole freeing El Cap in a day it's just based on sub 24 hours like that's all that really matters like the actual time is like more or less unimportant um and so like I had a good sense that I was going to be, you know, so that's why I only had one timer basically. And I had a good sense that I was going to be under 24 hours because basically if you get into that 24 hour range, your chances of success go down like quite a bit. If you just pass the Yeah. Just because of exhaustion. Yeah. And like an inability to like, like what gives out is like, it's amazing how your arms and your body like start to give out Mm -hmm. and you're like unable to like, you're unable to close your hands anymore and you're unable to hold on to holds. Like, I think I could have maybe climbed beyond 24 hours, but like not at a high level. And so, you know, I think before I reached 24 hours, I probably would have just failed. Right. (laughs) Cause so the question that I have right now is like, you're carrying everything on you, right? You and your partner have everything you need to do this ascent. Yeah. How much water do you bring? So that's one thing that's like, I mean, I guess we'd say that's like an asterisk in my ascent, which, you know, you think about like, big wall ethics and style and climbing is similar to ski mountaineering again um i had stashed water in the days prior or like the weeks or the season prior like so i see on el cap like in general people like stash water bottles and i wrote my name on them and said like you know emily harrington november 2020 and so that meant like don't drink this in november of 2020 because it's my water (laughs) and in general that's like an accepted thing um and then i also had my partner who was supporting me um, carrying water. Um, so I think, you know, several liters for the two of us for sure. Um, but that was like, you know, my ascent was essentially like supported if you were going to think about it in terms of like ultra running or something like that. Right. That's so interesting. I feel like, again, going back to the comparisons of climbing and skiing, like we haven't really developed that culture within skiing where like, I mean, even Cody, he's like, I really don't like rules because rules make it less accessible for people. Yeah. Um, but then on the contrary, like I have really like historically appreciated kind of this culture and climbing where like, if you go and do something, it's on you. It's your honor that you're saying I accomplished this in this style. And for the most part, it seems like the top elite athletes are very much within that boundary. Would you say that? Like you're, yeah, I mean, I think 
I think climbing is also going through this at this at this moment actually is this discussion of like what what's your like what style did you do it in how did you do it like wanting and it, it kind of I think it translates well into ski mountaineering and like high altitude climbing it's like with high altitude climbing it's like did you use fixed lines did you use oxygen did you use sherpa support like all of this stuff um it's like kind of like say what you did and then that's good mm-hmm. I think but be honest. Yeah, but be honest, of course. Yeah. Um, and I think it is easy in all of these worlds to like be a little bit more vague and not talk about what you did and how you did it. Um, and, and I think that exists in climbing as well. Like, I think it's becoming more and more like, I mean, I think Cody is right. I listened to a podcast he did for a climbing podcast called The Runout. And he was like, rules, you know, it was the whole rules thing. And I was like, you know what? He has a really good point. Climbers are really big sticklers for the rules. Mm-hmm. And there's constant battles and we've had battles over the years about like I mean back in the day it was like battles over like did you did you fall and then go it was called hang dogging like you weren't allowed to like fall and hang and figure out a sequence you had to like fall and come straight to the ground and start from the ground again right to try and that was like if you didn't do it that way you were cheating you know right and now that's like the most ridiculous thing ever like nobody does that nobody has that practice Um, oh interesting yeah and so it's like I think climbing is like very rule focused and goal for it focused and um, and achievement focused. But with big wall free climbing in particular, there's a lot of nuance. And even we don't talk about, you know, the nuance of like what what is like what style is better than another style. Like people are starting to actually there's been a a discussion about it very recently. Mm. Um, And and I think it is really interesting, you know, because there's a lot of details. It's like. Did you lead every pitch? Did you and your partner swap pitches? Like, you know, or or you, were you fully supported and had someone carry all your stuff for you? Or like, you know, did you do all the pitches in order? Like, it's a, it, there's a lot to it. Yeah, I mean, and so again, I always equate it to ski mountaineering because it's like, did you take your skis off? Did you use repels? Like, all of these little details where it's like... Did you ski it fast or yeah, did you side slip it? Totally. Yeah. It's like, and you can just say, oh, I skied it. But there, there's a lot of detail left out there you know and that's different like each person's descent is going to look different just like each person's ascent is going to look very different so you know I think in a lot of ways the devil is in the details with that stuff and it's like for the general public like I'm more or less okay with like you know just telling like a you know the general story but when it comes to like your actual core community I think it's important to be like this is what I did and this is how I did it Mm mm-hmm yeah. And to be honest about it. Well, I think with the core community too, or people like that are coming and following in your footsteps, like they see that you did something and that's a benchmark and they're like, yeah. whoa, like that's super inspiring. Like to me, it's like, oh, you can do that in that style, in that way. And that's how Emily did it. Like, that's how I want to do it. Yeah. I think or like, be. or like people can improve upon the style. Like if you tell the truth and are honest about your asterisks, then you can like, leave room for the future generations to like come and do it better you know like just recently um this team of climbers pre-climbed wow it's really windy out looks like it might storm huh um they did the free rider in a day but they both free climbed it and they did it unsupported so they carried everything everything with them wow which is like way different than most people do it you know most people stash like i did or you have your partner carry all your stuff and I thought it was a really cool way to do it. It's like they had all their water hanging off them when they left the ground. That's amazing. And like carried all their water and then wow. rationed it and then rationed their food and kept climbing. And like, 
you know, it was a very like, you know, very much like an ultra running world, like completely self-supported, like they didn't rely on anyone else. And I thought that was really cool. And I'd never even like considered that that was a way to do it Mm -hmm. until they did it. Right, right. And I think that's an improvement of style. Like that's cool. Totally. And building on that, I think that's really cool. In some respects too, like I think of climbing, like some of my favorite literature comes from the climbing world, Starlight and Storm is one of them by Gaston Rebouffe. Have you read that book? I haven't read it. It's beautiful. He writes about climbing in this really like poetic way. And it's like this romantic novel of him and climbing and his love of the rock. And like the way that he describes it, every time I picked it up, I was like, I want to do this. And I feel like climbing, climbers in general are like quite intellectual. And probably part of that stems from the discussion we're having maybe a little bit of like, you do it in this style. There's an honor system. Mm-hmm. You talk about it with your friends or whatever. But it, it, it also alludes to this like very humble side of climbing too. Like I feel like on the teams that I'm a part of, like Arcteryx for example, I feel like a lot of the climbers are so humble and they don't care about social media. And that that like is a relatively new phenomenon for the world. Where like some of us have totally embraced it, but coming in with like. And a, a bit of a following and like seeing all these incredible like Marc Andre mm-hmm. and you're like whoa you just don't give a shit like you're doing this for the soul of it and that's like something that I find so attractive about your sport yeah I mean I think that thankfully we do have a lot of like the best of the best and the legends um are, are people like Marc Andre um who really I mean they're not obviously not all climbers are like that <laughs> totally <laughs> like incredibly talented and off and also super under the radar um and humble um but I think a lot of yeah I think that's true I think climbing does kind of appeal to um people who are thoughtful and calculated because climbing isn't it's not a thrill sport yeah you're not hucking it's, yourself no, off a cliff <laughs> it's not it's like opposite it's like the kids who are really bad at gym class and uncoordinated and like like professional climbers a lot of them don't look like good athletes. <laughs> like they're like lanky and uncoordinated and like, you know, maybe look like they couldn't, you know, they couldn't stand on skis, really. Like most of them. We call I mean, I've we always joke, it. we always joke climber skiers are terrible skiers because they're they some are of my favorite. They're so bad. Like watching Alex Honnold <laughs> ski is amazing. So bad. <laughs> Biggest boots. Can't, he's gotten can't better. turn. <laughs> can't turn to save Doesn't his life. Doesn't believe in turning. <laughs> yeah, he just straight lines. Not it. as not as MO. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it does appeal, or at least it used to. I mean, I think you could you I mean, and obviously there's a lot of debate in climbing as far as like where it's headed. It's now an Olympic sport. It's definitely following in the paths of like skiing and surfing and that like and skateboarding and that like lifestyle like cool kid um and I'm perfectly great with it like I love that I love that climbing is becoming more popular and appealing to more people Mm -hmm. um but I do think traditionally and historically it's appealed to like more of the outcasts and I I like that me too like it is a thoughtful sport it's also just a hard sport it's like Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I go skiing and I haven't been skiing, you know, I haven't skied in maybe six months and I go skiing and I have fun and I'm like, that was awesome. That was so much fun. I had the best time. I loved it. Whereas like if I don't climb for six months and then I go to the gym, I'm like, that was super hard. That sucked. Everything hurts. 
I am terrible at this. <laughs> yeah, like you lose your strength and like it's out goes so the grade that you it. used to be able to yeah, climb. And you're just yeah. like battling your way back up the ladder and you got to train and you got to beat your head against the wall. And it's like hard. Whereas like skiing for me, and it might be because I'm not a pro skier, but it's like, it is pure fun. Always. Yeah. There is no like, and I think for me, I need both mm-hmm. because, and I'm lucky enough that I learned how to ski when I was young. So I didn't have to be a climber skier. I don't think I am a climber skier. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not at all. You're an amazing skier. Okay, for the record, Emily Harrington is an incredible skier. Well, you, I think when you grow up skiing, right, I mean, it's a little bit like surfing or whatever. You grow up doing a sport, you like learn how to do it properly, and you yeah, you get that never foundation. lose it. You yeah. never lose it. And skiing for me is like that for me. But like climbing, oh, climbing, you could like the the love hate relationship with that can be pretty intense because climbing's hard. You're battling gravity all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it appeals to a certain group for that reason. Well, it is, like you said, climbers are thoughtful. And, and I think of climbing as being a really thoughtful sport. Like you're solving yeah. a puzzle totally. with your body and the motion and the movement and your balance points. It's like, complicated and it's cerebral and it's thoughtful. Totally. Yeah. It's very cerebral. Yeah. Which I love that. That's like my favorite thing is trying to figure out how to do things. And no one person will do it like the other person. You know what I mean? You can work on a route with somebody and they'll find their own way and you'll find your own way and you can kind of share information. Um, and I love that process, but ultimately like when you unlock your own way of doing something, it's like the most powerful thing ever. Totally. I always look for you uh, for like short person beta. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Oh, okay. She doesn't like short that. Beta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Um, I guess there was like, well, I kind of also wanted to talk about like projecting because we do not have this in mm. skiing in the same way. But oftentimes, like when you go sport climbing and you have a certain grade that you want to go climb, you go to Spain for a month or however long. And what is that? Like, that seems like this obsessive, you have to yeah. be so dedicated to what you want to do. Yeah, that's this really interesting, like nuance of climbing that a lot of people who don't climb don't don't understand. And yeah, it's mainly in like bouldering and sport climbing. But, you know, also in... I think a lot of people saw like the Dawn wall or whatever and, and watched how Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen like beat their heads against that route for seven years trying to accomplish it. But like, I guess what maybe people don't realize is that's not unique for us. Right. <laughs> like literally I go to Spain and I pick a route, a single line and I only try that line for the entire time. And if I fall, then I keep trying it until I do it. And a lot of times I don't do it. So you basically go to Spain and you do the same like hundred something moves over and over again, rehearsing it, rehearsing it, rehearsing it, trying to make it perfect. And I think it is like, it's a little bit of an, I mean, going back to like the nature of climbers and also like probably why we have issues, like more serious issues, like eating disorders. And there's a perfectionism in, in that, Mm -hmm. in that executing a process perfectly so that you don't fail. But leading up to that success is like countless failures over and over and over again. Um, and that is kind of the true essence of climbing in a way. Right. Just so you, failing over and over and over again and obsessing over details. <laughs> I, that is a lot for me to wrap my head around. Like every time you're gone on a trip and I'm like, has she done it yet? Like, when is she going to do it? And I get like kind of on the edge of my seat. I'm like, Im, how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I think uh, many climbers will tell you that like, I've, I mean, I've left so m- I've gone and dedicated myself for months at a time to a single route and come away empty handed and then come back the next year and same thing. 
Um, so I still have like this laundry list of roots that are unfinished that I have right. to go back and revisit. And that I think mentally is really hard. It's really hard for people to wrap their minds around, but climbers are more or less just like, yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, if you like, cool, <laughs> get a, what would you call it on, on your, like if you lose a pad on your finger oh, or if something, you, like, if you like hurt your, if you like split your tip is what we call it. Yeah, like splitting your tip. If you this split is a your huge tip, ordeal. It's the end of the world. That's the equivalent to blowing your ACL and Oh, dude. It is the equivalent to blowing your ACL. <laughs> totally. Like I've seen, like, I follow a lot of professional climbers, and they're like, I split my tip on Instagram. I'm like, yo, I just blew my ACL. <laughs> it's totally And my meniscus. Like, yeah. It is <laughs> it's going to set me back. <laughs> split tips, little tiny cuts on the finger cause countless tears and so much agony for climbers. And we're just constantly looking at our fingers have so we have we all have what we call skin kits that we like travel with in our backpacks and it's like tape super glue uh sandpaper file um and there's like a special kind of tape like you got to get the expensive tape not the shitty tape (laughs) and like you constantly filing the skin constantly looking at it i mean some climbers use something called antihydral which is like a chemical whoa um to dry their skin out so that it doesn't sweat as much because Mm. sweaty skin slides Mm -hmm. um so it's like and also it's like do you have do you have good skin do you have bad skin do you have dry skin do you have wet skin like what's your skin like what what kind of skin do you have i'm a sweater yeah you that's bad skin yeah you need some (laughs) anti-hydral i have dry skin i'm lucky like i don't split very much but when i do it sucks like it'll put you out yeah because you can't i mean honestly it's true though you can't climb hard if you if you're bleeding all over the place yeah (laughs) that's the deal that's true and you've like told me stories well first of all like you ever go to a hot tub party with a bunch of climbers everyone has their hands like elevated no No one is getting those things wet yeah like I mean, you're not know, even doing your dishes. No, I know climbers who don't do dishes. I know climbers who wear rubber rubber gloves in the shower <laughs> fully. <laughs> or sleep with uh what is it? Like chopsticks or like um, Oh yeah, they popsicle sticks on their hands to keep them straight when yeah, they're healing. Yeah, you can tape your Yeah, if you have a split, you tape your finger open with like a splint like popsicle sticks um so that it, the split will heal better overnight because if because otherwise your hands close up and right. then you open them in the morning it reopens the split yeah hot tips hot tip have you ever slept with popsicle sticks i haven't on your finger? no i have good skin <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're blessed with good skin um okay i just kind of wanted to dive into like your relationship with your parents because your dad does all of these incredible adventures like alongside you almost like not all of these really crazy audacious ones but he is out there like setting his own what's his hardest route that he's climbed my dad has climbed 512 he went to spain and i coached him on a 512 um it took him two weeks uh, but he trained a lot before that and it was awesome many split tips yeah yeah <laughs> and were your parents did they ever like bat an eye at your life choices of becoming a professional climber were they always supportive my parents have been always supportive of my life choices yep I think it's because I was always like a really good student too so it was like we never had to have that debate of like oh school or climbing it was mm-hmm. always like here are my grades like I'm going climbing and they were yeah. like okay yeah great did you go to college I did I went to university of um CU, University of Colorado at Boulder. What did you study? I studied international affairs, um, so like international politics, and I my region of focus was African politics, oh, African studies. Yeah, it was interesting. It was, yeah, it was cool. It was like interesting to learn like the politics of the world and the U.S.'s place in it, and um, obviously that shifted a lot, or sort of, sort of not recently. Um, but it was a really good like engaging field of study which yeah. I don't really use anymore I was yeah. gonna go to law school 
Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Yes, another audacious goal. I love it. So that's your setting your dreams. <laughs> I big. still could go. Yeah, yeah, you could still. Yeah, yeah it's never too late. No, <laughs> I went to school one time after an injury, and I was like, I just really love to learn. Like I love reading yeah. books and stuff. But I showed up, and I was like in crutches, and there was a bunch of high schoolers taking AP credits there, and I felt very out of place. But I was super engaged, sitting at the front, and like loved going it's back to school. It was so fun. I kind of miss it. Like there's sometimes when I'm like, oh, it'd be so fun to like take a couple classes. But then I run out of time. Yeah. I'm like, I'd probably fail. Yeah, <laughs> totally. out of time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the nature of our jobs, we're on the road so much. Yeah. There's not a lot of routine with that. Is no that routine. like, I guess that's something that I've always looked to you. I'm like, whoa, she is so dedicated to these goals that she's like spending so much time in the gym preparing for that goal. You're like very, it seems to me like you have a process and you're mm-hmm. going to do that. And like, I've had a mantra lately, like recovering from my body, from my injury, which is body before business, Mm -hmm. because I feel like I need that in my mind every single day. Like if I wake up and I get on the computer to do work, I'm like, no, I need to go to the gym and recover from this injury. But I find that to be pretty hard. Like how has that affected you? It's really hard. I think the balance is super hard. I think it's exhausting and hard. And for me, it's a constant struggle because I'm, I'm the type of person that's always like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not training enough. I'm not, you know, all of these things and all of these other things are taking away from training. Um, and so I don't think I nail it actually. Um, I think I'm like really driven and I'm really focused on it and I prioritize it like beyond everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there is always that feeling of like, and I work on that a lot, that always that feeling of like, I didn't do enough. I'm not enough. Like I'm the type of person who just doesn't rest ever. Right. Because I feel like I can't because if I, you know, I got to do my workout and then I got to go here and travel here and do this. And it's like being pregnant has actually helped me a lot with like being like, oh no, actually I do need to rest. I do need to like, I didn't get to my workout okay today. Okay. That's fine. Like, mm-hmm. but it's really hard for me to walk away from, from a workout or something that I feel like I was supposed to do. Um, I'm not very good at, I think I'm not very good at listening to my body actually. It's like, really? no, I think I'm, I mean, I think I am and I'm not like, I'm also not very injury prone, knock mm-hmm. on wood. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really had an injury ever. Like, wow. For real. Like being pregnant is probably, I mean, it's not an injury obviously, but it's the most that I've had to like, be like oh I have to alter this or I can't maybe I shouldn't do this you know it's it's the first time mm-hmm. and for me that was probably the hardest thing because I'm used to pushing 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 all the time and totally getting away with it right. every time right um and so I, I think but I also think that I've been relatively fortunate in that I I think if I was just a rock climber I would have been way more injured throughout my career But because I'm passionate about skiing and other things, I'm able to give my body a break and like do other things. And I think that's helped keep my body like injury free because I climb, but I also ski and I also run and I do all these things that mix it up. Whereas like climbers don't get injured when they, you know, it's not like skiing where you crash or whatever. Like climbers get injured because they overdo it mainly. Overuse. And it's like, they're like me. They're like too driven, too focused don't listen to their bodies and then they like pop a pulley in their finger or they blow their shoulder out or something, you know, right. um, it's overuse. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, I haven't experienced that. And I'm honestly a little bit surprised by it in some ways, but then I remember, I'm like, Oh yeah, but I also do these other things. And I kind of am able to take a break from climbing because I'm still really passionate about these other things that I do. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like for my career, like kind of building on what I know and always learning more and getting into different realms of skiing and then other sports like climbing or mountain biking, like that's helped me maintain my engagement and love mm-hmm. for skiing too. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like you come back to it and you're like, oh my God, I missed this. Yeah. This is awesome. The seasonality of it, too, helps for totally. sure. Because you yeah. could technically be climbing, like, year-round. Oh, yeah, and most climbers do climb year-round. Yeah, um, which you could with skiing, but it's not quite the same. No, you'd have to travel a lot. And, like, yeah. with the gym, like, most people climb year-round. And, and I think that's, in some ways, it's, like, not that good. I mean, I don't like to do that because I mm-hmm. definitely burn out and need a break, which is why I ski and do all these other things. Yeah. (laughs) And talking about burnout and like mental health and stuff, you mentioned that you have a mental health coach as of four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. We actually share the same. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We have the same mental health coach, which has been such a beautiful thing for me and my growth and my understanding of where I'm at and setting boundaries and everything. Can you just talk a little bit about like how that's helped you deal with different things? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just helped put me in a place that feels, like, much more balanced and much more, um, like, appreciative of who I am and proud yeah. of who I am. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's helped me kind of, like, stay grounded in a way. Um, and, and it's helped me recognize when when I am struggling and kind of like what to do about it and what I need in those moments. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's been really helpful. Like just kind of like the slowing down of like my mental processes and like the analyzing of it. Um, she's like brought a lot more awareness to like how I operate, Mm -hmm. I think, and kind of like how I default to like punishing myself a lot of times, you know, Mm -hmm. and going into like, Oh, I should be doing more. I should be doing this. I'm not enough. All these things. Um, I'm able to like recognize that and kind of, redirect my energy um, towards something that's a little bit more productive. And obviously it's a work in progress. It's never going to be perfect, which is why I continue to work with her. And also it's like, you know, I start, I think about it. Like I think about training in a way in that it is work. Yeah. You know, it's like tiring. It's conscious work. It's like exhausting. Sometimes I'm like, okay, here we go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But it's really good. But I think about it like training in a way because sometimes it can be like really exhausting because it's like, it's hard to, it's hard to like talk about things like that. It's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to work on them. It's hard to not, it's almost easier to just fall back into your old habits and be like, oh, well, I just like don't eat and suffer really hard. And like, that's how I achieve goals. Yeah. Right. It is (laughs) like almost easier to go that way, you know? Yeah. Um, but then the, the knowledge that there is a better way and there's a, a more um, productive way and a healthier way and a more, like, joyous way is is what keeps me, like, continuing to try to do better for myself. Yeah. Yeah, I think when I first got involved with our mental health coach, I didn't necessarily feel like I was in a headspace where I was super bummed out or, like, had issues that I wanted to work on. But once I started talking to her, I was like okay, we all have issues Mm -hmm. that we need to work on. And if we're focusing so much attention on our body and rehab and um, being strong for the sports that we do, like your mind is such a huge part of that. Like we need to be exercising that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been super helpful. I think. Yep. I totally agree. Yeah. And and she gives us a lot of really applicable tools to apply. Ways to, like, redirect your energy when you're kind of, like, spiraling, (laughs) you know. Um, Ways to think about it differently, have a different perspective. It's been really helpful. It's been super good. What are your favorite tools? I like my – I like this tool where you just, like um, (laughs) – 
I like well, I like the tool of like listening to like rage music. Yeah, and letting like, the anger and out, letting it out. Yeah, I think that's really good. Like that ability to like just rage and like have a tantrum. Um, <laughs> totally, that's totally like frowned upon. But like I have tantrums all the time while I'm climbing. Um, like, You've seen it on film. Oh yeah, I yeah. Cry watch and Golden all Gate. of that. Yeah, you watch Golden Gate. You see that I do have tantrums I let it out and I know innately that it feels good I know that that's what I need in that moment right but I don't do it in my or I didn't do it in my like normal life yeah you know you just kind of like bottle it up and you're like don't feel that way you're an adult like you know chill out but if you take a moment to yourself and like go take some space and go like have a little temper tantrum it's kind of awesome how it's good you feel. awesome. <laughs> yeah. So what she's talking about is, like, literally, like, having, like, a rage like playlist. A, yeah. Yeah. Like, whether that's Metallica Stomping. or, like, yeah. And then, or, like, having, like, a noodle. Pool like, noodle. A pool noodle and bashing that around and yeah. just letting it out because you have to recognize that you have these emotions and don't be judgmental about those emotions, but, like, accept them and like they are part of you and that's yeah. okay we all go through that but if you let that emotion come out and you and you express it it has like solved so many of those moments for me totally for me yeah. too and it's just like helped reset like reset me and i do it when i'm climbing like i've done it since i was a kid when i climb right and i know that it helps like i can tell in my mind it's like this like, relief oh yeah I'm like okay here we go like now I'm gonna feel better in like 10 minutes <laughs> yeah yeah I love that shout out to our mental health coach she's amazing <laughs> <laughs> um and then I guess I just wanted to touch on your mom and my dad were both diagnosed with Parkinson's around the same time um how has that like how, how's your mom doing with that first of all she's been good more or less yeah I mean I think that she I think it's being managed basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that it's, it's hard because my parents don't live here. Mm -hmm. They live in Colorado. I've seen them more recently now, actually. Um, and it's, it's one of those diseases that's like, there is no cure and everyone, it kind of like manifests itself differently in every person who has it. And so it's been interesting and hard to kind of like watch how it's like affected my mom differently from your dad mm -hmm. and their different struggles. Um, but for the most part, it's like been pretty stable the last few years. But that said, it's like, it's hard because there is no cure and you're not like, oh, all of a sudden, like this person's going to be better. You right. know, it's like something that you just kind of live with and accept. Yeah. And everyone around them has the same. Um, so I think, you know, again, it's like one of those important things that you realize and maybe I don't realize it enough about our parents is like they're here and they love us so much. And then like they're not always going to be here. And that's been like a hard thing to to wrap my mind around. Mm -hmm. um, and like my parents are relatively healthy right now, but it's like, oh, yeah, they're not always going to be here. And like that's important to like spend time with them and be with them and and have these really valuable experiences with them. my mom and my dad. Um you know, and now that I'm having a kid, like that's also super exciting. They're going to be psyched mm -hmm. to like have a grandchild and experience that, you know, their, their childhood with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been tough. Um, but it's been like, I would say it's okay right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like stable, but you know, you're always in, it's in your mind. You're always like, okay, but this is, this problem's not going to go away. Yeah. I yeah. think, I don't know if that's how you feel. Yeah, I think it's like this slow deterioration mm -hmm. of um, many different ailments from yeah. that disease. Some of them are really scary, like 
like I know one that my dad is like working with right now is having hallucinations or uh-huh. like night terrors. Mm-hmm. And I think like 30% of Parkinson's patients have hallucinations mm-hmm. and they can be really difficult for the caregiver. In this case, my mom or like what, I mean, I just got back from a trip with him. Like these things happen and they come up and they're so real for him. For him, there's like figures in the building and like you have to deal with that. And that's really scary. And I think yeah, it's it's just hard to watch your parents get older, especially when you're close with them and you It's really hard. Yeah, it's this it's a big part of life. And then it makes you want to just be like like go have more fun. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like what my parents do. They especially love with them. Like yeah. my dad still beats me left-handed on the pickleball court <laughs> and I love that. And I love saying that and like owning that, but yeah. one day I'll get him. <laughs> maybe. Maybe maybe <laughs> not. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's pretty much, I think we covered a lot. There's a couple questions that I want to ask every guest. And uh, that, the first one being, what is your wildest day of your life? It could be in the mountains. It could not have anything to do with the mountains. The wildest day of your life. You sent this one to me earlier and I was like, I don't have, like, I don't even know what my wildest day is. But I would say, um, oh my gosh, what is your wildest day? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh it's what really a, hard it's a hard question you're like well like a couple months ago i did something wild but then of your life yeah that's like really intense totally <laughs> like i can remember like going to the kachatna spires and feeling like afterwards that trip in itself was the most on the edge that i had ever been okay I like and that, that was like a human powered in kachatna spires when like we were just very exposed the entire time for like six days straight and when I left, I came home and like actually, I don't know the right word, but I had to decompress. Mm -hmm. Like I had to like step back and be like, is that like the position that I want to put myself in continuously? Mm -hmm. If I go down this path of being like more ski mountaineer oriented. Um, And for me, I think like after having lost so many friends, like, no, I don't really want to put myself in that position. I want to have longevity. I want to be ski touring when I'm 80, maybe 90. So you had like a realization. Yeah. I actually had this weird, I think I had, I had like a weird, it's, it might not be the wildest day, but it is something that sticks out in my memory. And it's like, it was when Adrian was like summiting K2 without oxygen. Mm. And I had this, I was in Peru and I was like bolting roots in Peru, sport climbing. Um, and I had this very like weirdly disconnected feeling of like, it, it's the first time, it's the only time, it's the only expedition Adrian's ever been on where I've been like, oh, he might not make it. He might not come home. It was like the same year that um, David Lama and Hans Jorg and Just Russ Kelly died. And it was really, it was just like a hard year. And I kind of like asked him not to go to K2. And he was like, well, this is really a big dream of mine. It's like the last thing I want to do before we have kids. This was in 2019. Um, and he was like, this is something I really want. And uh, it, I was like, okay. But I kind of, like, mentally prepared myself that whole time for, like, he might not come home. Like, you have to be okay if he doesn't come home. You're going to be okay. And I, like, kind of accepted it in my brain that he, like, might not. It was this really weird space to be in. And, like, that whole day I was kind of, like, waiting for, you know, I was, like, mentally preparing for, like, the worst. And I've never done that ever in my Mm -hmm. life. And I, like, went through the whole day of, like, just listening to music in my own world. Like, I think I went on a hike. I think I was, like told people I wasn't going to climb that day or whatever. And I was just in Peru in this like random Quechua village in the mountains. Um, 
and like it was it was weird I like envisioned my life without him and like all these things that we wouldn't get to do and I kind of like mentally just tried to prepare for the worst because I felt like it would somehow protect me interesting yeah and then like I got a text like late 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 that night from his sat phone it was like we summited I was like oh <laughs> I didn't anticipate this <laughs> that's the best news it ever was, like though. great but I was like wow that was like a weird experience to go through and we haven't had to go through that again because you know we kind of he came home and he was like that was kind of messed up like I'm really glad I did that but I really don't need to do anything like that again and I had he also had a moment where he was like under the um, bottleneck Ciroc for six hours. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? This is terrible. Yeah. I might not come back. And so we were having these like two parallel experiences. And so I guess it wasn't, it was like a wild day because it was one of those life, you know, life altering moments where you realize you're with someone that like also does these really risky things that you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And you might someday have to like realize that they might not be there. Right. Yeah. But and and now we're having a kid, and so we're definitely revisiting all of those things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm always, like, everyone has their different way of processing that and dealing with fear and emotions and all of that kind of stuff. I've actually heard you say that climbing is the vehicle in which you experience all of these different emotions. Oh, yeah, for sure. The human emotions of everything. Fear, um, you know, joy, uh, like, hardship, suffering. Like, all of it. Mm-hmm. I know I'm mainly listing negative things, but... <laughs> and also massive failure. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, the next question that I want to ask every guest is, what personal achievement are you the most proud of in your life? I think that we often gloss over this stuff and don't celebrate it. And so I'm, like, giving you an opportunity to brag. And, like, this is totally dedicated to our mental health coach because we don't celebrate this stuff enough. And it's even true. the small wins, like, right now, going to the gym which is like every single day I go there, I'm like, Emily would go to the gym and it gets me <laughs> super fired up. And then I turn Beyonce on, which I am so excited. She released her new album. Yes. Have you been listening to her in the gym? I, Cause it's a dance party. I, I need to dive in. <laughs> yeah. It's like so <laughs> motivating, but I get in my car and I turn her on and I celebrate. Like I do a little dance and I like, I like sing that. along. Cause it's like this small moment of like, yes, we're doing the right thing. We're like, That's we're great. living our truth. That's good. So yeah. I think I actually have two, I have two of them. Like my big one is that I've like managed to make a career out of like something that I'm so truly passionate about and like a successful career where I'm able to like, you know, I'm going to raise a family off of it. And I'm really, really proud of that. Like, I think that it's hard and Mm -hmm. it's hard as a woman. And I'm like proud that I like took something that I started learning how to do when I was 11 years old. And I made it into something that that is financially viable for me and I obviously had a lot of privilege involved but you know not everyone can do that and I'm really proud of it as um, you should and it be. wasn't just because I was a good at climbing yeah <laughs> you know a like lot more that there's a lot of people who are good at climbing like yeah you can you know and so there's a lot more to it and I really I value that um and then the other thing I guess recently I like you said small wins like I've been really dedicated to my training throughout pregnancy and it's been hard because you hear people like, oh, just slow down, like, just take a break, like, just chill and listen to your body. And it's like, well, I am. I mean, I said I'm not very good at listening to my body, but I think I've gotten better. Um, <laughs> but I've been really dedicated to, like, taking care of myself and continuing to work hard. And I still work really hard in 
pregnancy. And I think that that it's important to show that and to express that, that it's okay. You can still be an athlete Yeah, and I'm doing it. And I have like days at the gym where I'm like, oh my God, I still feel like myself, even though I'm climbing like four letter, you know, four grades lower. It's like, I still feel like I'm moving like me. And that's Mm. so cool. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, you know, you're constantly getting thrown at you like, oh, your balance is going to be different and this is going to be different. This is going to be hard. and It's going to be that. And it's going to be this. And you're like, yeah, but I'm also still me and I'm doing it. Yeah. (laughs) I think that is a big celebration. I feel like, especially for people coming behind you that want to have families, like, oh, these people are doing it and they're doing it in their way and they're maintaining the stoke and their passion. And yeah, still here. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was a wonderful chat. It's been a true pleasure. And thank you for for being my uh, first podcast conversation. Can't wait to hear. I was a little nervous. That was perfect. (laughs) Nailed it. All of it. Uh, Love you so much. Love you too.